Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Carols for the King. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Just a couple of years ago, Time Magazine published an article on its website listing the most popular Christmas songs of all time. In order to determine this, Time dug through the records at the U.S. Copyright Office, which digitized registrations going back to 1978, and collected, Time collected uh, data, data on every Christmas album recorded since that time. Here are the top three most copyrighted Christmas songs since 1978, and it's my understanding this is the, the farthest back the records go. Uh, Silent Night has 733 copyrights. Uh, Joy to the World is in second place with 391. And then Oh Holy Night with 374. As you can see, Joy to the World ranks second only to Silent Night as one of the most recorded carols of all time. Not only is Joy to the World a Christmas favorite among believers and unbelievers, it also has a fascinating backstory. We're continuing our series called Carols for the King this morning by unwrapping some of the Christmas songs that we've grown up singing. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 98 and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder and follow along with me. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers will bring one to you so that you can have a copy of God's Word with you. The theme verse for this series that I'm encouraging you to memorize with me uh, this month is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It's, uh, if it's not underlined in your Bible or highlighted, I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, it's one of my life verses uh, that I have listed on my Facebook page under favorite quotes. Let's read it out loud together. You can either look on your sermon notes or look on the screen behind me uh, on the count of three. One? No, just kidding. <laughs> the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners doesn't seem to excite Christians today like it did in the first century when Paul was writing to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. One reason for this might be that we live in a country in which most of our citizens have heard at least some part of the gospel. So it's not fresh anymore. However, I think one of the secrets to making this Christmas not just another Christmas is learning the meaning behind the songs of the season. First, the backstory on Joy to the World. The lyrics for Joy to the World were written by a man named Isaac Watts. Watts was born in 1674 in Southampton, England, and he was the son of a cobbler and a tailor. His father was a revolutionary leader in the Protestant church in Britain and had spent some time in prison for his nonconformist ways. Because of his father's example, Isaac was known for being somewhat of a rebel and always discontent with 
the status quo, especially in church. He often asks the question that resistors to change hate to hear. Why can't we do things differently? Or why can't we do them better? Like most young people throughout the centuries, Watts found worship music in his day to be monotonous and boring. He saw no joy in the traditional psalms being sung in churches at the time, and he found the lyrics to be archaic and hard to understand. So Isaac's father challenged him to stop complaining and to come up with a solution. The challenge set Watts on a course in his life that would lead him to write more than 600 hymns and poems. His first several compilations were met with great criticism, contempt, and seen by some as a tool of the devil because it was different. It was different than anything anybody had done before. And so he met with a lot of resistance. In his early 20s, Watts became the personal assistant for uh, uh, the pastor at Mark Lane Independent Chapel in London. Within three years, at the age of 26, he replaced that pastor and took over leading the church. Because of his new ideas and his work ethic, the church grew quickly, and the church also gave him a platform in which he could publish his songs, and because he was the pastor, he picked the songs that the church would sing. So he didn't have to fight the resistance as much, because it was sort of, quote, his church, unquote. Well, uh, interestingly, one morning while studying Psalm 98 in his devotions, Watts was inspired to pen a four-stanza poem called Joy to the World. The tune was originally set in the common meter and often sung to the melody of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing for about the first hundred years of its existence. However, about a hundred years later, uh, in 1836, another revolutionary songwriter helped make joy to the world a Christmas classic. Like Watts the century before, Lowell Mason was his name. Mason wanted to replace the stale worship music being sung in churches in his generation, in the 1800s. Watts thought worship music was stale in the 1700s. I find it interesting because of some of the worship words that I've seen in churches in my lifetime, and I think about, man... Watts and Mason, these guys were revolutionary in their time, and their stuff that they were writing was considered contemporary worship music. So, um, well, in 1836, Mason composed a new melody inspired by Handel's Messiah, and he took that melody and he married it with the lyrics from Joy to the World, written by Watts, and as they say, the rest is history. Handel's Messiah and its exuberant score put together with the lyrics from Isaac Watts seem to be the perfect match. There are a couple distinctives I want to point out to you uh, for this carol. One thing that makes Joy to the World unique is the song's repetition. Half of each stanza repeats the same line. And heaven and nature sing, repeat the sounding joy, far as the curse is found, and wonders of his love. Those are four lines in four stanzas, and they're all repeated. Another distinctive that 
is, is that it really isn't about Christmas. I was kind of shocked to find this out myself when I started reading about this carol. It's not really technically a Christmas carol. Um, it has no mention of Mary, the manger, shepherds, a star, or stars, or the virgin birth in it at all. Uh, in fact, although some of the lyrics can be loosely tied to the Christmas story, the rest of the song describes things that will happen when Jesus returns to earth a second time. That's what it's actually describing. A final distinctive is that it was inspired by an Old Testament passage, Psalm 98, as opposed to a gospel passage like most of the other carols. And so for being a song sung at Christmas time, it's amazing that there are no New Testament references like we see in the other carols. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to quench your joy or be a Grinch here. or I don't want you all of a sudden going, oh, great. You know, I can't sing joy to the world anymore. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Um, I think there still are parts of the song that match Christmas and can be used. But more importantly, I think the reason it caught on is that it's joyous jubilant, exuberant mood, the tone of the song seems to match the great joy mentioned in Luke 2 that the angels sang with. And that seems to be why it caught on. Here's a few, uh, some key terms in the uh, carol, A Joy to the World, that are worth mentioning. Um, repeat is unique. Have you ever noticed that it's probably one of the only songs you've sung in your lifetime that has you sing the instructions of what you're supposed to do. I didn't realize that either until I sat down to study it this week. You see, because most songs just repeat the line. So can you imagine singing Joy to the World as, instead of saying repeat the sounding joy, just, just singing sounding joy, sounding joy, no, because you're so used to seeing repeat the sounding joy. Well, it's unique in that most songs don't have the instruction repeat song in the lyric. The lyric just repeats. Joy and wonder are also distinctive words for this, a hymn from this era. Although joy and wonder don't seem abnormal to us in 21st century English, they were not actually part of the common vernacular in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, Psalm 98, as we look at it together this morning, looks back at the Lord's rescuing of Israel from the Babylonian exile, and it also looks forward to the day the Lord will return to judge the earth and establish his kingdom. And so in Psalm 98, in looking back and in looking forward, the psalmist answers three questions about worshiping the Lord. Look at with me, uh, it's Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist writes, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Here's point number one on your outline. The first question that the psalmist answers is, why praise the Lord? Why praise the Lord? Watts took this 
And the lyric that he created is, The Lord has come and he rules the world with truth and grace. The psalmist, in verse 1, you'll see, calls for a new song. The call to sing something fresh might have inspired Watts to write a song that was fresh and new. New songs keep worship from becoming monotonous. They make us think about what we're singing. They take effort to learn. And they renew our affections for the Lord. We see in verse 1 that the Lord had done marvelous things. The Hebrew word that's used in the original text could be translated wondrous, surpassing, or extraordinary. Well, what did the Lord do that was marvelous, wondrous, surpassing, or extraordinary? Well, he kept a promise that he had made decades earlier to allow the Israelites to be captured by the Babylonians as punishment for their sin, and then kept a promise to restore them to their homeland. Now, this is impressive because of what it took for the Lord to accomplish this. He had to raise up a pagan nation to conquer Israel, the Babylonians. They took all the Israelites back to Babylon with them, relocated them. Massive refugee project. And then 70 years later, he raises up the Persians to conquer the Babylonians, and the Lord moves in the heart of the king of Persia to release the Israelites to go back to their homeland. So the Lord basically just had to move heaven and earth to make all that happen. But the point of the psalm is that the Lord did exactly as he promised he would do. And this required a new song, because the old songs just didn't seem to be enough just to cover what God had done. They just didn't seem to do justice. And so, so the psalmist says, let's sing a new song to him, because of what he's done. It's so amazing. He came through. He did what he promised he was going to do. And so the mood of this psalm is euphoric because of how long the Israelites waited for God to come through. It reminds me that delayed gratification increases anticipation, which multiplies satisfaction when the fulfillment comes. I told my kids recently that uh, we were talking about Christmas gifts and Christmas and gifts under the tree, and I mentioned to him that when I was a child, I prematurely found out what I was getting for Christmas by peeling back the wrapping paper on some gifts. <laughs> Why do you look at me with such judgmental eyes? You know you did it too. <laughs> Shh, don't tell my mom, by the way. She still doesn't know. Needless to say, it ruined my Christmas morning because I already knew what I was getting. And then I had the additional burden put on me because it wasn't my fault, you know, of having to pretend like it was the first time I had ever seen those gifts. So not only was my joy was deflated, but then I had to say, oh, wow, this is great. Delayed gratification increases anticipation, which multiplies satisfaction when the fulfillment comes. So, of course, I reminded my kids, don't ruin your Christmas. 
It's not worth it. And of course, I didn't look at my gifts the rest of my childhood because I'm like, eh, that didn't work so good last year. But it makes me wonder, because the Israelites were so exuberant and joyful about God coming through with his fulfilled promise, that heightened the sense of joy because they had to wait so long. It, just, it makes me wonder if the Lord might be making some of you wait a little longer for an answer to your prayers. Because he knows the longer you have to wait, the more thankful and joyful you will be when he comes through. Just saying. Next, Watts writes in his carol, And Wonders of His Love. This was probably inspired by verse 3, if you look at your Bible. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So that's the motivation for uh, God delivering his people, according to the psalmist, was God's steadfast love. And because he is loving, he keeps his promises. If he was unloving, he wouldn't keep his promises. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This psalm not only recounts the Lord's past work of saving his people from Babylon, but it also foretells the future work of Jesus Christ in saving his people from their sin. This was wondrous for Isaac Watts because he understood the great depths of his sin and the great lengths the Lord went in order to uh, save him. He understood that despite being a victim of our sin, God took the initiative to reconcile us back to himself by sending Jesus into the world to save sinners. Watts understood that, as you've heard me say before, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe for a people who didn't care so they could have a life they don't deserve. So the application what do we do with these first three verses? Well, uh, one that comes to mind, and the Spirit may give you another one to write down, but here's one that I thought of, and that is, uh, remember what he's done for you. Uh, that's a strong theme here in the first three verses, is remembering. The Lord remembers, but also the psalmist is remembering what God did. He's praising God in essence by saying, He remembered us! And I think the Holy Spirit whispers a question that's hidden in the text here in the first three verses. And it's this. Do you remember him? Do you remember what he did for you? The scriptures show us time and time again that people who have been delivered by God demonstrably delight in him. So have you been delivered from your sin? Or do you know what you've been delivered from? Because throughout all the scriptures, delivered people demonstrated great joy in their worship. So remember what he's done for you. Let's look at the next stanza, uh, verses 4 through 6. So the psalmist, he gets pretty straightforward here and gives us some applications. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. 
I don't know, what's he saying to do there? It's kind of not clear. Maybe I need to look it up in the Hebrew text or get a commentary out. What's he mean exactly? Does he mean do it nonstop? Does he mean just, in, you know, momentarily? How joyful do I have to be? You know, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So here's the second question that the psalmist answers, and that is, how should we praise the Lord? Isaac Watts wrote in, in, in Joy to the World, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Even Watts picked that up from Psalm 98. Notice in verse 4 it says, make a joyful noise. Now I think to the congregation, what, 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 what the psalmist is saying is that the only requirement really for you is that we're going to lower the bar from professional musicianship to amateur to below that to just make some noise. So that means your worship doesn't have to be in key of a certain harmony. It doesn't have to necessarily be in rhythm, although you guys did great this morning. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be on melody. Just show some signs of life is what I think the psalmist is saying, okay? I like how Eugene Peterson's message translation renders this. Uh, he translates this verse, uh, verse 4. Shout... Your praises to God, everybody, let loose and sing, strike up the band. <laughs> now, the dictionary defines joy as an emotion evoked by well-being, pleasure, or delight. This text and several others make it clear that the defining characteristic of the church's worship is to be joy. And that's because for the believer, as someone once said, joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts, announcing that the king is in residence today. Now perhaps you're wondering, as I've been wondering, if Christ followers are supposed to be joyful, then how come it seems like so few are? Well, I've been given this some thought recently, and I think one reason that some who profess faith in Christ aren't joyful in their worship is that they have believed three lies about emotion, three worldly lies about emotions. And so let me give you these three to write down. The first lie that the world tells us about our emotions is that we are slaves to our emotions. The world tells us that whatever we feel, we must do, or our lives would become intolerable. We just couldn't live. This demonic thinking is disguised in cliches such as, trust your heart, or you've got to do what feels right, or just follow your heart. This is a horrible idea because God's word says that our hearts are wicked, sinful, fickle, and rebellious. 
So we are slaves to our emotions, according to the world. The second lie that the world tells us about emotions is that we cannot change our emotions. The world tells us that our emotions are set in stone once we feel them. We're told that they can't be changed because they are too powerful for us and have control over us. Now, this unbiblical thinking is packaged in such phrases as, I can't help myself, or it's just what I feel, or here's one I've been hearing a lot more lately in the media, it's my truth. What an interesting twist. Taking something that's supposed to be unchanging and undebatable and based on fact and pairing it with feelings. So the world tells us that we are slaves to our emotions, that we cannot change our emotions. And here's the third lie. The world tells us we are not responsible for our emotions. This is obviously the natural result of the first two lies. If we are slaves to our emotions and we can't change them, then we are not responsible for them. And instead, that allows people to, to basically act like victims of their emotions, of their feelings, as though they, their feelings are an entirely different person, sort of like an outer body experience. It's like this other person I carry around with me that keeps on doing things to me, and I just can't help it. So the world lies about our emotions by saying we are slaves, that we cannot change, and that we are not responsible for our emotions. Now God's word refutes these lies from the world by teaching us that emotions are born out of our heart. In other words, what we treasure, love, and worship in our hearts will drive thinking, and thinking always drives our emotions. This means that instead of being an engine that drives everything we do, emotions are actually more like the instrument panel that tells us what's going on under the hood. Now, I'm just scratching the surface here on a big topic, and I hope to unpack this further in the future, but it's an itch that I think needs to be scratched. And so let me counter the lies from the world with three truths from Scripture about emotions. And so here's the first one. Emotions, according to God's Word, are our perception of external stimuli. They are our perception of external stimuli. Sometimes our perceptions are right, and sometimes they are wrong. For example, the fear of falling causes us to be careful when climbing a ladder. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, fearing that God has abandoned us while we go through a trial is not good. And it's an inaccurate perception. Because if you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you have access to the promises of God and he has promised his presence to be with you for the rest of your life. This is why over and over again, if you want to do a fascinating study in your devotions, just like go to, go to BibleGateway.com and or some other search engine like blueletterbible.org, and just punch in fear and see how often fear comes up in the scriptures and what God has to say about fear. It's a fascinating word study. What you'll find is that fear is a problem for us, and God answers fear by saying, fear not, I am with you. 
for example, in Isaiah 41. So believing that God is not with us or being fearful despite his promises is one of the reasons why he would call anxiety sin. So emotions are our perception of external stimuli. There's another facet to emotions that biblical counselors talk about um, after looking at the scriptures, and that is uh, emotions are also an expression of internal thought patterns. So they are part perception of external stimuli, but they also are an expression of internal thought patterns. Some are sinful while others are not. For example, delighting in the Lord because we mentally understand who he is and who we are and what he's done for us is good. Delighting or being joyful in our worship is an emotion that's rooted in accurate biblical theology about us and God. On the other hand, being devastated by criticism because it reveals that we failed to achieve our goal of perfection is bad. It's sinful. Because what it reveals, when we're devastated by criticism, it reveals that we were trying to achieve perfection on our own and that we couldn't handle it when somebody revealed we were less than perfect. And it also reveals that we think we're maybe uncorrectable. And there are plenty of Proverbs that tell us we should be teachable and we should be receptive to correction and instruction from others. Again, our emotions reveal what we treasure, what we love, and what we worship in our hearts. Behavior always reveals theology. You find out what somebody really believes by looking at what they do, not listening to what they say. Somebody could say, oh yeah, I believe in biblical marriage. Yeah, I absolutely believe in being faithful to my spouse and all that until they have an adulterous relationship and then say, God told me it was okay to divorce my spouse. And yeah, Well, I thought you believed in biblical marriage. Well, I used to. So in other words, you believed until it was inconvenient for you. And then you decided you didn't want to believe that anymore. Or you just never believed it, really. So emotions are also our expression of internal thought patterns. Uh, therefore, if you get more excited about your kids, grandkids, sports, new clothes, new cars, retirement, vacations, than you do the Lord, it's most likely you love those things more than the Lord. Why? Because people naturally are hardwired by God to get excited about and talk about what they love most. That's why... You can tell a lot about a person by just looking at their social media feed, seeing what they post pictures about, what, what they comment on, looking at what's on their profile page, their loves and likes and favorite quotes and movies and songs. You can get a lot about a person by just looking at those things. And that's why I always get concerned when somebody professes to know Christ, but then when I look at their Facebook page or their Twitter page and I don't see any evidence, no mention of Jesus, no scripture verses, no nothing about Jesus. And I go, well, what, what do they love? Oh, they're always talking about their favorite sports team, though. Or oh, they're commenting on politics a lot. They must love those things. 
people naturally get excited about and talk about what they cherish in their heart. So here's the third truth that the scriptures tell us about emotions, and that is we should glorify God with emotions produced by biblical thinking. We should glorify God with emotions produced by biblical thinking. Because the Lord understands the connection between our thinking and our feelings and our behavior, he tells us throughout the scriptures how to think and feel. For example, he commands us to rejoice in several places in the Bible. We're commanded to fear him, to not fear people. We're commanded to weep with others and to celebrate with them, to hate evil but not hate our brother, and on and on and on. The Bible is loaded with emotions, and God telling us, what bad emotions are and what good emotions are and how we should think and feel. And so I think the commands in scriptures about our emotions reveal that the Lord has expectations that we lead our emotions instead of letting them lead us. Well, that's key. You might want to write that down. Here's why this is so difficult. It is so ingrained in us from birth to be led by our emotions that asking someone to reverse that and lead their emotions is like trying to get a PC to become a Mac. You know, it's just, it's just foreign. The operating system is just absolutely different. However, the Lord makes it possible for this to happen through faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power of his word. It can be done. In fact, Isaac Watts did it. You see, there's more to the story that I haven't shared. In order to fully appreciate joy to the world, you need to know what drove Isaac Watts to Psalm 98 on that faithful day in his devotions. Check this out. In his book, Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas, author Ace Collins writes this. Throughout his hymns and theological writings, Watts became one of the best-known clerics in England. Elizabeth Singer, a young woman deeply impressed by the minister's inspired written work, wrote to Isaac and quickly established herself as his biggest fan. She proposed marriage to him via mail. When he accepted, Singer anxiously raced to Isaac's side. Rather than cementing a lifelong love, this meeting ultimately focused the writer on his work, not Elizabeth. Singer would later say this, quote, He was only five feet tall, with a shallow face and a hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and a death-like color." End quote. Unable to look at the man and see the brilliance that lied just beneath his skin, the woman immediately went back home. Heartbroken, Watts poured himself into his writing, never again seeking the companionship of a woman. 
Did you catch that? Did you see what he did there? Isaac Watts experienced a painful rejection, went to the scriptures to get God's thoughts on his situation, and out came a song on joy that can be found in Jesus Christ. So it leads me to ask this question. If the Lord can help Isaac Watts overcome his negative emotions to find joy in the Lord, then do you think he can help us too? You bet he can. So here's the application. We need to do what Isaac Watts did. And that's learn how to think biblically. It was right thinking about the Lord that helped the psalmist and Watts to be able to worship the Lord with shouts of joy. A gigantic step forward in spiritual maturity that too far believers take is learning how to lead their emotions instead of being led by them. This is accomplished by learning to think biblically. Well, how do you do that? Well, by meditating on God's word daily, surrounding yourselves, ourselves, with others that do the same so they can speak the word into our lives too. And as we learn the scriptures, we must apply them by adjusting our thinking and behavior to match what God's word says. So, so if you're reading a passage where fear comes up or anxiety comes up, you don't just read it and go, oh, well, that was really nice. I'm going to close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. No, 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 no. We're supposed to let the word of God dwell richly in us and ask ourselves and ask the Lord, how do I need to change my thinking so my behavior and my emotions change? I need to, as, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, have the mind of Christ, where I, the more I spend time in God's Word and in prayer and meditating and memorizing Scripture, the more I should see the world in my life like Christ sees it. When we do this, the Holy Spirit frees us from the slavery of our emotions, changes them, and helps us be responsible for them. This is why it's vitally important to make time to be in a small group, to make time in the morning to get into God's Word, because if you don't, you will have your emotions driving your life, and it will be like being in a storm out in the ocean. You've heard me say this before, if your faith is not grounded, or excuse me, anchored in the truth of God's word, then it will be tossed around by the ways of your emotions. People that are, that are rooted in the word and dwell in the scriptures, they tend to, if I was to sort of do a, uh, like an EKG or something of their emotions, their, their baseline, they would not deviate as much from their baseline. But what I've noticed about people that, that aren't, in the word as much is they tend to have real highs and real lows and real highs and real lows. But again, those that are anchored in the scriptures, they don't have as many highs, they don't have as many lows, they, they, they tend to be really balanced. They, 
They, they, they can get excited when they need to get excited, but they don't stay low very long if they get down. So learn how to think biblically. Let's look at the final couple of verses here, verses 7 through 9. The psalmist writes, Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Here's the final question being asked. Who should praise the Lord? Who should praise the Lord? And Watts sort of answers it in his own lyrics. In heaven and nature should sing and let men their songs employ. Or as Eugene Peterson translated it early, everybody should. And everybody will eventually. Notice in verses 7 through 9, the all-inclusive language used here. The psalmist lists various facets of creation and then says the world and those that dwell in it. These final verses describe the highly anticipated day when the Lord will return to, as it says in Revelation, to make all things new. So the application is this. Look forward to his return. Look forward to his return. Godly believers that have a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ long for his return because he is the only true love that they have. He is what they love most. They long to have unhindered fellowship with him. They long for him to establish his kingdom here on earth because that is when every wrong will be made right. That is when every wound will be healed and when every knee will bow before him. And so it begs the question, looking at verses 7 through 9, do you long for the return of the Lord? Or do you long for something else? You long for his return so you can be with him. In anticipation of the Lord's return, Isaac Watts wrote this line in Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. It's not only a wink at the fact that there was no room for Jesus to be born in the inn. But it's also a nod to the individual decision every person must make to invite Jesus into their heart. So have you done this? I, I, I'm not asking if you know the gospel story. There, there's a difference. You can be familiar with the gospel and be able to explain it, but not have made room for Jesus in your heart. And so that's why Watts writes, because he's coming back again, the second advent is what theologians call it, one of the calls to action in the carol is, let every heart prepare him room. In other words, make sure you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because when he comes back, it'll be too late to change your mind. 
If this is something that you've not done yet or not sure whether you've done, I'd love to talk to you after the service about how to do that. The Lord waits and the Lord welcomes those who are willing to repent of their sin and by faith trust in him alone for their salvation. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for Isaac Watts. Thank you, Lord, that you took a painful rejection in his life. And once again, as you've done so many times and so many other saints, you brought forth something beautiful from it. Brokenness created beauty. Thank you, Lord, for this precious carol that reminds us of the joy we should have at Christmas time. Father, would you, by your spirit and by your grace, do a work in our minds and our hearts so that we can lead our emotions instead of letting them lead us? Would you help us, Lord, to become a church that is known for its joyful worship? So that regardless of how many people are here, regardless of what the temperature is outside, what the temperature is inside, regardless of what songs are chosen, we give you joyful worship. Help us, Lord, so that regardless of what kind of week we had or what week we're going to have, we give you joyful worship. So that as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, an unbeliever might come in and visit one of our services and see how we worship and say, God is truly among you. Father, for those that have been waiting a long time for a promise to be fulfilled or a prayer to be answered, would you give them grace and sustain them as they wait? But also, Lord, as they wait, would you build anticipation so that, like the Israelites here in Psalm 98, when you do come through, there will be everlasting joy. Lord, we ask for your favor in our church. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to make this Christmas unlike any other Christmas. Would you help us, Lord, as we close this year and begin a new year to fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ? We pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.